When people are asked about what it takes to be a hero, their responses usually include phrases such as making a personal sacrifice, triumph over adversity, or some other extraordinary contribution to society or mankind. Occasionally, in that light, we may also view some animals as heroes, typically large domesticated mammals such as horses, who have endured both the burden of yoke and saddle in man's urge to dominate the landscape. Or how about dogs, man's best friend, whose steadfast loyalty has protected homes, saved many a life, and provided comfort in dark times? Few would argue against calling such furry companions heroes. But the hero I'm going to propose to you today may surprise you. What would you say if I told you that one of the great heroes of Western history was a fish? More specifically, the cod. Now, before you switch off, just hear me out. Fair enough, few of us would consider a stupid, cold-blooded fish to be anything even close to worthy of such a mantle. But what if I told you that this fish made the discovery of America possible, fed countless millions of starving Europeans during the famines of the Middle Ages, and even motivated modern technological advancements we take for granted, such as refrigeration. Relentless fishing for cod has financed economic booms, political revolutions, and social change on both sides of the Atlantic, and has itself been the subject of numerous wars well into the 20th century, almost fracturing the European Union and forcing a redrawing of national borders in ways no other animal has. None of our four-legged friends even come close to the significance of the Atlantic cod in shaping the politics of the modern world as we know it. The irony is that, for all its significance, man's limitless greed has today brought the humble Atlantic cod consistently believed to be an inexhaustible resource, to the very brink of extinction. If you're even just a little bit curious as to how a fish could possibly have played such an important part in our history, then join us as we dive into the murky depths of the history of the cod, the piscatorial hero of Western civilization. Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel. Not just the who, the what, the where, but also the why. Our story begins in the dim past of ancient Europe. In Euskalheria, the ancient territory of the Basque people, that is nestled in the border region of modern France and Spain from the western Pyrenees mountains down to the Bay of Biscay. The Euskaldunak, as they call themselves, are an ancient race of people that some have suggested were actually descended from the Paleolithic Cro-Magnon ancestors who migrated into southwestern Europe 50,000 years ago. Maintaining a distinct local presence despite the waves of migration that followed in later millennia. The reason for this Cro-Magnon origin theory is the significant distinctive genetic markers and peculiar blood type characteristics found among Basque people. They have the highest type O proportion of any human population, 
as well as the highest rhesus negative factor of any racial group, shared to a lesser degree with the Berbers of the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, people of the Canary Islands, as well as the Celtic domains of the British Isles, places that are known from the archaeological record to have been sites occupied by Cro-Magnon man for long periods. There are other theories about the origins of these peculiar blood-type characteristics, but I'm not going to go there, sorry. Whether through ancient origins or just sheer isolation, these genetic anomalies are accompanied by an equally peculiar language, Euskadi, that predates the arrival of the Indo-European family of languages with a complex grammar and syntax that is unique among world languages and one of the few surviving ancient tongues of Europe. So this group of people lived continuously for many thousands of years, distinct from, though in regular contact with, the other significant cultures that came and went, both in the Celtic North and the Iberian South, no doubt developing a solid river and oceanic trade network. There was consistent habitation in mountain strongholds and cave systems, as well as along the Ebro River Valley, in which we see evidence of a sophisticated artistic industry. Along the coast, we also find significant archaeological evidence of a prosperous fishing industry throughout the Bay of Biscay, and the Basques were also among the most enthusiastic of the megalithic building cultures. Later, they also developed a copper industry and a transit hub that served as a halfway point between the Portuguese Iberian cultures of the south and the Celtic lands of the Languedoc. With the collapse of the Bronze Age around 700 BC and the subsequent emergence of the Iron Age, the Basques became more heavily influenced by their Iberian and Celtic neighbours, who, along with the Romans in the 2nd century BC, attempted repeatedly to conquer them. This resulted in a retreat into fortified mountain settlements that managed to avoid both being conquered or assimilated. Nevertheless, Roman development of coastal towns in the region they called Vasconia saw an expanse of the fishing industry complete with processing factories, called Caetariae, that serviced the needs of the broader empire obsessed as they were with the umami fish sauce they called garum. In the post-Roman period, the region regained its independence and put up an ongoing resistance to the Visigoths, Moors and other marauders, till they were eventually compelled by Charlemagne's Franks to develop their own feudal kingdoms, similar in structure to neighbouring ones, including Pamplona and later on Navarre. The long history of Basque Atlantic fishing has a written record extending way back to at least the 7th century, where an abbey received a bill for 40 barrels of whale oil from the Basque city of Bayonne. It seems that by this time, the Basques were already famous seamen and whalers, selling oil for lighting all over Europe and establishing factories in towns along the entire Biscay coast. Venturing deep into the Atlantic and to the far northern Arctic regions following shoals of fish and migrating whales, much evidence points to their pioneering shipbuilding industry that took them far from the safety of the Iberian continental shelf. Now, by the 9th century, 
Viking marauders had plundered their way up and down the western edge of Europe and managed to conquer strategic fortified cities in the Basque region, such as Lapurdum or modern Bayonne. When the Basques managed to expel them a century later, they had nevertheless benefited from their naval expertise and knowledge of Arctic navigation that their Norse conquerors had disseminated over the course of several generations. They even redesigned their own whaleboats along Viking lines, which they called a chalupa, the design of which became the template for whaling dories right into the 19th century. They were also introduced to the gastronomic delights of their peculiar Viking dried stockfish, called skrei, a migrating fish known to us today as Atlantic cod, which would spawn off the northern coast of Norway before returning to colder waters of the Barents Sea. For thousands of years, the Norsemen would fish for these plentiful beauties and dry them in the cold Arctic air till they were as stiff as a plank and could be eaten like jerky or rehydrated in any number of stews and dishes that wasted very little. Tongues, eyeballs, livers, roe and even skins, swim bladders and intestines being considered delicacies in Viking society. While herring was a regularly available source of staple food, Viking fishermen increasingly began to favour the cod and travelled long distances following its migratory patterns. You see, shoals of herring were all very well, but were incredibly labour-intensive and their oily meat was hard to dry out for long voyages. A single cod, on the other hand, could grow to over six feet tall. They were easy to catch and dried readily into lightweight cargo, providing a massive return on investment. So they followed them all the way to America. The story goes that legendary Viking adventurer Erik Thorvaldsen, known as Erik the Red, grew up in Iceland because his dad, Thorvald, having murdered a neighbour during a dispute, was banished there as punishment. It seems that Eric was a chip off the old block, because when he was himself later involved in a similar dispute with neighbours, he dispatched them with the usual Viking aplomb, and took out their kinsmen for good measure too. Banished from sunny Iceland for the heavy sentence of three years, he and his merry men set out to investigate for themselves a new land that apparently lay to the west, which had been reported by a fisherman who'd been blown off course by a storm in 876 AD. Sure enough, they soon ran into a desolate, glacier and iceberg-strewn rocky landscape. But there were plenty of seals and whales around, and the cod seemed to be just as plentiful as they were back home. Eric the murderer suddenly had an epiphany and promptly restyled himself Eric the property developer. Using his time in exile to scope out its potential, when he finally returned to Iceland, he spruced this incredibly rich and promising new land of milk and honey to potential settlers who were having a hard time surviving a recent famine in Iceland. According to Eric, they should just drop everything and follow him over to this new, insanely fertile country he simply named Greenland. 
despite the fact that there was not a blade of grass to be seen anywhere. He must have been quite the hustler, because by the time they got there, half of the 25 colonist ships that accompanied him had been sunk in treacherous Atlantic storms, and the remainder, too traumatised to make the return voyage, set out exploiting the marine life, which at least meant they wouldn't go hungry. In fact, with the plentiful food supply, they managed to establish permanent settlements, and Eric became quite the tycoon, as the thriving settlements lived off the cod and processed whale, walrus tusk ivory and seal skins for the burgeoning European market. It wasn't long before other wind-blown fishermen reported land even further to the west on which they saw trees for the first time. So Eric's son Leif, keen to expand the family business into the lumber industry, set out on his own expedition and within a couple of days made landfall in what is today Baffin Island in Canada. He reported enormous flat rocks near the shoreline, but no arable soil whatsoever, naming the area Heluland, from the Norse word for flat rock. Archaeologists have reported that a long-standing Viking base was soon established on the spot, complete with huts and workshops. Though fishing was plentiful, there was no woodland to exploit, so Leif headed further south eventually coming to a forested area he named Markland, from the Norse word for woodland, today near Cape Porcupine on the Labrador coast. Here they harvested some timber and headed yet further south, coming ashore at a mild and temperate location with plentiful wild grapes, earning it the elegant name of Vinland, today presumed to be on the northern tip of Newfoundland. Leif returned to Greenland, laden with lumber, fish and grapes, and lays claim to being the first European to set foot in America. His compatriots would go on to send another five colonial expeditions to set up villages and exploit its natural resources over 500 years before Columbus. Don't worry, I'll get to him in a minute. Anyway, by the 1050s, stories were filtering into Europe via Danish sources of a mysterious new land in the west, rich in timber, as well as animal resources in which the Vikings had made settlements. It's pertinent to note that none of this westward Viking expansion would have been possible without the dried cod stocks the Vikings carried aboard their open-decked longboats. Light, easy to stow, slow to spoil and highly nutritious, It made long sea voyages in open boats possible and could be processed much more easily than whale or seal meat, which required not only space but wood for smoking to preserve the flesh. Unfortunately for our poor, peace-loving Viking settlers, they soon got a serious dose of karma when local indigenous Beotuk tribes took a liking to their metal tools, domesticated animals, and Scandinavian wives, and out-Vikinged the Vikings, pillaging their settlements, causing the complete collapse of their colonial project, and a hasty withdrawal back to Greenland. Rack one up for the Indians. The Atlantic cod, Gardus morua, is a very unusual fish. 
It has some of the lowest fat and highest protein ratios of any fish, making it easy to dehydrate and dense in nutritional value, which also helps prevent spoiling and makes it a perfect candidate for jerky. In nature, it is incredibly long-lived, over 30 years, and breeds prolifically. A mature female over 15 years old will release over 9 million eggs in a spawn, and furthermore, the species is very hardy and resistant to disease. As an omnivore, the cod is highly voracious and will eat virtually anything it can hoover up as it swims lazily near the sea floor with its huge mouth agape. Fully grown adults in the cold waters of the Arctic Ocean have few natural predators until they come in close to shore. Cod has the whitest and flakiest flesh of any fish. Its muscular system is comprised mostly of fast-twitch muscles that are capable of explosive speed but poor stamina. This makes cod a lazy swimmer, meandering gently through the seabed currents, only making sudden moves when gobbling up prey. This muscular characteristic also makes them easy to reel up once caught, as they offer no resistance whatsoever. Atlantic cod are a complete disappointment for sport fishermen, who enjoy a proper battle on the end of their lines, which they only get from oily bluefish that dwell in the middle or the surface waters, such as marlin or tuna. When spawning, cod come in very close to shore, but usually they frequent the familiar deep-sea banks where currents bring potential food up from deeper waters. So once you know where they are found, it's easy money to fish for them. Early reports from this area of North America claim that cod were so plentiful you could walk across their backs from a ship to the shore. Indeed, it's been reported that you could barely row a boat through the mass of bodies at spawning time. American cod fisheries were a gold mine just waiting to be exploited. The Viking foray into America marked the high watermark of their civilization. As they withdrew, their influence elsewhere also began to contract. Their leadership fragmented, Europe's defences improved, and the Vikings themselves began to assimilate into the cultures they conquered, most notably through their widespread adoption of Christianity in the early 11th century. Instead of raiding and selling slaves on the open market, they now sold cod. By this time, the wily Basques were fishing and whaling all the way up past Ireland, and it wasn't long before they too began selling cod in their home ports, as well as through English markets such as Bristol. The thing was that nobody in Iceland, the main clearing hub of cod at the time, had either sold them fish or even seen them in the vicinity. Moreover, their dried cod was not the same as Viking dried cod, where on earth were they getting their fish from? The main difference between Basque and Norse food processing was that they used salt to preserve the whale meat they were catching. Salt, a common commodity in the Mediterranean owing to its hot climate, numerous shallow basins as well as mines, was the favoured method of preserving food compared to Scandinavian countries whose cold weather and jagged coastline made salt production untenable at scale. 
The best they could do was expose it to the Arctic winds, pickle it in brine or smoke it. What the Basques soon discovered was that by salting cod, like they did whale meat, and then drying it in the sun, it would dehydrate to an astonishing 20% of its fresh weight, much more than could be achieved just by air drying alone. And in this state, it lasted significantly longer than whale, herring, or indeed just plain air-dried cod, making it a lucrative, easy-to-transport product with a very long shelf life of years rather than months. To top it off, when rehydrated, the salted cod, called bacalao by the Iberians and mortuere by the French, tasted much better and flaked more impressively than the fresh fish did once it was rehydrated and cooked. Iberians and the French, who have a thing for smelly food, went crazy for it, and in Scandinavia too, it soon supplanted herring as the favoured dish of the masses. For poor people all across Europe who could not afford fresh fish, cod bacalao was cheap, high-quality nutrition. Basque empresarios were making a mozza. If you think they were onto a good thing, the Catholic Church now compounded their good fortune by instigating a program of fasting and abstinence, which primarily involved no sexy time or the eating of meat. Talk about smashing toxic masculinity. Animals that dwelt in the water, including fowl and, believe it or not, whale, were considered cold in biblical terms, while terrestrial animals were considered hot and subject to lean day fasting. Because Jesus was crucified on a Friday, abstention on that day was considered a suitable religious sacrifice, as were the 40 days of Lent and a whole raft of other holy days. Kulansky notes that Christians were now forbidden from eating meat for almost half the days of the year, so those lean days very quickly became cheap salt cod days. It's no exaggeration to suggest that salt cod became quite an integral food for millions of poor people all over Europe, not only on feast days, but also quite generally, as it was so cheap that even chicken and pork couldn't compete for value. Dineros were raining from heaven into the coffers of Basque cod merchants every single Friday, and still nobody knew where the hell they were getting their endless tons of fish from. Like any good fisherman, they were jealously guarding their favourite fishing spot and weren't going to share it for love or money. By the 15th century, it was getting harder to keep a lid on it. Cod was now big business, and everyone wanted a piece of the action. Fishermen had worked the offshore waters of Britain since Roman times, but the English had never reported seeing a single Basque vessel even as they themselves began encroaching upon Iceland's own fishing grounds. A new player was now emerging on the international trade scene, the Hanseatic League. It was formed by German merchants in the 13th century to lobby for corporate interests in their dealings with monarchies all across the north of Europe. They petitioned for trade concessions and tax breaks, and in return opened up a lively and vigorous network of trade, built lighthouses, dredged rivers, and suppressed piracy from the Baltic seas and deep into Europe. 
They had chapters in all the major European cities and were famous for their reliable payment and quality control of goods. In London markets, they were referred to as Easterlings, as they hailed from the Baltic or Ostsee, from which is derived the currency of Britain, the pound sterling, because the money of the Easterlings, unlike that of the English, didn't get continually devalued. Increasingly, English merchants demanded payment in the pounds of the Easterlings. Eventually, the name contracted to just Sterlings. Anyway, the Hanseatic League was soon becoming quite the corporate superpower of its day, controlling entire supply chains and eventually monopolizing the entire Baltic herring market. So now they decided to make a hostile takeover of the cod market as well. By now, the port city of Bristol in England had become a major clearing hub for Icelandic cod, owing to its position between Iceland and the rest of Europe. And when in 1475 the League imposed an embargo on the export of fish to the English, riots broke out and Germans were murdered in the streets of cities all across England. The situation for Bristol merchants now became dire when a customs official by the name of Thomas Croft and a local merchant, John Jay, began to consider taking seriously a belief long held by local sailors of a mysterious land in the Western Ocean called High Brazil. Whether it was the remnant memory of ancient Viking sagas or the drunken ravings of Basque sailors in a Bristol pub, we don't know but the two now decided to raise some capital and fitted out several ships to go and investigate. Upon their return in 1482, they reported no landers having been sighted, but the ships, peculiarly, were laden with salted cod. The cod kept coming, and when in 1490 the Hanseatic League offered to renegotiate a reopening of the Icelandic cod trade, Bristol merchants told them to shove it. But here's the thing. Cod couldn't be salted and dried on deck. There was just not enough space. It had to be done on shore, out in the open, on flat, rocky ground, where sand and grit and spray wouldn't contaminate the catch. In other words, they must have either processed the fish themselves somewhere on shore or bought it from someone who did. There was no land beyond Ireland that could have served that purpose, and since our two entrepreneurs were being tight-lipped about whether or not they found High Brazil, the other local merchants were getting salty, if you excuse the pun. So they reported them to the local magistrate for allegedly buying fish from the Icelanders on the black market. Now, it was considered a conflict of interest, and hence illegal, for a customs official to personally engage in trade, so Croft quickly found himself in hot water. Local rivals were soon gathering for a lynching, but then a peculiar thing happened. He confided to the magistrate that he had obtained the fish in the far western Atlantic. The case suddenly continued behind closed doors, and Croft was soon inexplicably acquitted on all charges. The bacalao kept coming and curiously, a couple of other Bristol merchants now also started venturing out into the deep Atlantic, not so much in search of mythical high Brazil, 
but rather the lucrative cod fisheries that Croft and Jay were so tight-lipped about. All of a sudden, King Henry VII shows up out of nowhere, and as news filters in of Columbus' discovery of America, there is a corresponding scramble to send more English ships over to the Western Atlantic, for which the king commissioned an Italian, Giovanni Cabotto, to lead. In 1497, in one of his letters, the king refers to this newly discovered land, which historians now believe was not a reference to Columbus's discovery. There is the suggestion that it was already a well-known secret that there was a land to the west and a huge cod fishery just offshore, probably the Grand Banks, which Cabot, or should I say Caboto, was instructed to formally claim for England. But why the foreigner and not one of their own Bristol seamen? John Cabot, or more properly Giovanni Caboto, was a Genoese Italian born almost the same time as Christopher Columbus, and almost certainly in the same city. They probably knew each other from a young age. They were both acquainted with Amerigo Vespucci, the Florentine adventurer and pop travel writer, who convinced Europe that the Americas were not in fact part of Asia, but a totally new continent, that is to say, what would turn out to be two new continents, which he termed the New World. All three men were students of Florentine sage Paolo dal Pozzo Toscanelli, the primary exponent of the westward expedition to India idea. Caboto and Columbus both ended up in the merchant business, and much of their dealings have parallels, with the duo ending up in Seville in the 1480s. There has been the suggestion that the Columbus brothers and Caboto were in cahoots, strapped for cash and looking for sponsors to achieve the same ends. Eventually, Caboto ended up in London, where he got the financial backing of powerful Italian bankers, while Columbus hustled the monarch of Spain, for a time even trying to sweet-talk the French and English monarchs too. We know that Columbus had himself been to Iceland in the 1470s, and given his obsession in a westward journey, it is quite certain that he heard tales of High Brazil, Viking sagas, and other stories of western lands, along with whispers of secret cod fisheries. For reasons I'll allude to in a minute, he ended up setting out from the Iberian coast, while Caboto set sail from Bristol. Numerous financial documents have subsequently been unearthed, referring to Caboto as the other Genoese, and the other Italian, and even the Venetian, his working citizenship. Which means that some kind of professional relationship likely existed between the two. Archival Italian bankers' ledgers describe an investment paid to Caboto to locate the new land, rather than a new land, which, given the rules of Italian grammar, implies that the bankers already knew it was there and were eager to participate in its exploitation. Caboto successfully reached the Newfoundland coast on his second expedition of 1497, but disappeared without a trace on his third voyage in 1498. We know he went ashore, which means that he would have actually set foot on American soil well before Columbus. 
This is because Columbus didn't arrive on the continental mainland until 1498, having only ever disembarked on the Caribbean islands of Santo Domingo, Cuba, and a couple of others until that time. A letter has also recently been discovered, written in 1497 by Bristol merchant John Day, and addressed to the Lord High Admiral Columbus himself, in which he discusses Cabot's recent trip to Newfoundland. Referring in no uncertain terms to the fact that Bristol seamen, to use his phrase, found and discovered it in the past, with the rather impertinent addendum, as your lordship well knows. Why was the haughty Columbus corresponding with Bristol merchants? We know that he visited Bristol as well as Iceland for trade purposes in the 1470s, prior to going to Seville. Maybe he was just re-evaluating his long-held beliefs that the Caribbean was actually part of Cathay, or maybe he was, if you excuse the pun, just fishing for more information on Cabot's recent voyage. But the way in which Mister Day dropped the mic on him is rather suspicious of a whole lot of behind-the-scenes skullduggery that is yet to see the light of day. It's probably worth mentioning at this point that several other Portuguese navigators, most notably João Fernandes Lavrador, were also exploring northern American waters in the early 1490s, and it's quite possible that they set foot on the mainland even before Caboto, and possibly even Columbus. We certainly know that Lavrador was subsequently employed by the English to advance their own claims. Which implies a conflict of interest, as he originally worked under a charter of the Portuguese king. A number of subsequent maps indicate that the Labrador coast was named in his honour, and that appears to be the consensus among historians. It suggests that the Portuguese were sending expeditionary voyages out from the Azores much earlier than the Spanish would have liked to admit. I'm going to throw another spanner in the works here by noting that. Labrador is also the derivation of the name of the ancient Basque city of Bayonne and the entire Gascoigne region of Lapourde, whose fishermen were already well established along that very coastline before any of the so-called explorers ventured out there to claim it for king and country. These fishermen, along with their Breton and Portuguese buddies, were trampling up and down the beaches, salting cod and boiling whale blubber. While Caboto, Lavrador, and others sailed blissfully by, pretending not to see them. Despite the suspicion of a cover-up, there are interesting contemporary Spanish records that still exist, but which few bother to take seriously. Take, for example, an anecdote written in 1526 by a Spanish colonist, soldier, and chronicler called Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo y Valdez. He recorded a widely circulated story in which a Spanish merchant caravel, piloted by one Alonso Sanchez of Huelva, was blown off course during a routine supply trip from the Canary Islands. The damaged ship ended up being blown into the challenging currents of the mid-Atlantic, that saw it drift aimlessly for another month until it ran into surprise, surprise, the island that would later come to be known as Hispaniola. The story goes that the crew were greeted by friendly naked inhabitants who treated them generously, and after some time, 
having repaired their vessel, taken bearings and supplies, headed back home. But the trip took longer than their supplies held out, and when they finally made it to Madeira, only five of the crew were still alive. Barely. Guess who was living in Porto Santo, Madeira, in the early 1480s, at the very time the stricken ship finally limped home? Our old mate, Chris Columbus. Apparently, he very generously took the ailing sailors into his own home to help them convalesce, making careful and extensive notes of their entire story, poring over their maps, ship's log and positional calculations, before the entire crew unfortunately expired from exhaustion and malnutrition. When Columbus began banging on about his own supposed discovery a decade or so later, Maderans who knew the truth were not impressed. Myth or not, what's clear is that for years, Columbus scoured ports up and down the coast of Europe for any scraps of information that could help him get to a place he already knew existed even if he was ultimately wrong about what that place actually was. Now, you may be wondering where our friends the Basques have disappeared to. Caboto made no mention of seeing them en route, but he had only skimmed the eastern edge of Newfoundland. He did report, though, that the waters in the vicinity were teeming with cod. Funny he should mention that and not much else. Thirty-seven years later, Jacques Cartier, an experienced Breton corsair sent by King Francis I to seek an alternative passage to Asia and to secure lands in the north of the New World for France, sailed into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. His journal entries were rather mundane, noting the coastline, sailing conditions and interaction with overly friendly locals. He returned to France without having found a passage through, but gloriously claiming the entire place for king and country. Vive le roi! And suck on that, English dogs! Cartier, growing up in the bustling Breton cod market of Saint-Malo, and reportedly himself having fished the Grand Banks off Newfoundland as a lad, is now credited with the distinction of naming Canada. At the time... He had not mentioned so much as having seen a floating beret in his ship's official journal, yet in subsequent letters to the Crown, he almost nonchalantly noted, In those remote waters, I found a thousand Basques fishing for cod. He also noted in a later voyage, having stumbled upon almost a dozen Breton, Norman, English and Portuguese fishing ships as he was making his way out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Why he originally neglected to mention the flotilla of fishing vessels, and instead went on to describe exotic Native American tribes, intrepid adventures up the St. Lawrence River, and a whole lot of other supposed discoveries, certainly should raise eyebrows, but most historians seem not to be the least bit curious about the omission or why the Mi'kmaq indigenous people he met on the foreshore were so enthusiastically keen to approach and trade, compared to the other natives further downstream, who the French found highly suspect and hostile. It was as if they had long been in the habit of doing so, 
Some historians even note a distinct Basque dialect in some of the native languages and place names of the region, something they believe was the result of a pidgin language that developed between fishermen and locals who offered their labour in seaside processing in return for metal tools, bread and cider. Indeed, recent archaeological discoveries point to middens and settlements that were shared by Basque and Indigenous families living within the same compound. The Basques, already having cornered the cod trade, would soon go on to dominate the entire whaling industry also, with oil factories eventually established all along the icy Newfoundland coastline. It seems that, despite Cartier's journal, Breton, Basque, Norman, English and Portuguese fishermen were quietly cashing in on the cod bonanza, pulling in monsters all day long and high-fiving one another, while their kings and politicians back home were waging war, making treaties, breaking treaties and making war all over again. Like true fishermen, they minded their own business, kept their mouths shut and their eyes on their fishing lines, while vainglorious show ponies like Columbus, Caboto and Vespucci were banging on about their bogus discoveries that were, in all likelihood, already a well-known secret in every fishing port from Tromso to Huelva. Explorers you've probably never even heard of, like Portuguese João Vasco Real, Polish captain Ivan Skolna, Hanseatic privateers Diedrich Pinning and Hans Pothorst, are all recorded to have reached Newfoundland shores decades before Columbus made his highly publicised land grab in 1492. In case you think it's not fair to compare Arctic-American-Atlantic crossings to wider mid-Atlantic ones, consider Jean Cousin, a Norman-French navigator who claimed to have stumbled upon Brazil, near the mouth of the Amazon, four years before Columbus's celebrated voyage and 12 years before the celebrated Portuguese navigator Pedro Alvarez Cabral. Cabral made what can only be described as a highly suspicious beeline from Lisbon straight for the most eastward promontory on the supposedly unknown south in 1500. One of Cousin's captains, Spaniard Alonso Pinzon, having fallen out with him after their return to Dieppe in 1488, subsequently left for home, joined Columbus's crew for the astonishing promise of a 50-50 split of the profits, and, along with his two brothers, acted as chief advisor to Columbus and was appointed captain of the Pinta, guiding their journey westwards with an unsettling degree of confidence. It was the Pinta which first sighted land, surprise, surprise, and while Columbus's home trip saw his own ship blunder its way into unfriendly Portuguese Lisbon, Pinzon made it safely back to Spanish territory, sailors who clearly knew what they were doing. Columbus spat the dummy and publicly accused Pinzon of trying to steal both his glory and his treasure so he threw a lot of shade at him and even barred his reception at the Spanish court, with Pinzon dying in relative obscurity soon after, probably of syphilis, one of the unintended gifts 
the Europeans brought back from booty time in the New World. The disease takes at least three to five years to show up in its terminal and disfiguring tertiary phase. If you do the numbers, the fatal symptoms that killed Pinson would have been impossible as a result of that voyage, but entirely probable from an earlier one. Why Columbus would offer such an unheard of split of the profits and significant command to a secondary captain who supposedly knew less than he did, and then make it his personal mission to discredit and humiliate him afterwards, can only make you wonder what the truth really was. As an aside, syphilis was originally called French disease because French troops appear to have been the vector of its early transmission throughout Europe in the 1490s. Funny that. Jean Cousin and his crew were almost all Frenchmen, operating out of Dieppe. Symptoms of the disease spread throughout Europe much earlier than can be explained by a 1493 arrival. Interestingly, just a couple of years after Columbus's voyage, another Frenchman, de Gonville, sailed from the Norman port of Honfleur and also claimed to have landed in Brazil, at that time still unknown where he came across several Breton and Norman ships who had been trading with the natives for years. To this day, French history books credit their own boys, Cousin and Gonville, as being the true discoverers of the New World. Spain got the gold and the glory, while France got venereal disease. Quelle merde! In case you're still sceptical of the pre-Columbian Atlantic crossings, How about the story of the Venetian Zeno brothers, Niccolo and Antonio? In a very old story, considered by the usual historian establishment as being a hoax, yet was itself well known and even mentioned by Mr. Canada himself, Jacques Cartier, during the Crusades of the 14th century, the Zeno family operated an extensive cargo logistics business out of the Republic of Venice. They were wealthy shipping magnates that transported goods all the way from England to the Holy Land. Apparently, during one such routine voyage, a century before Columbus, the brothers made the acquaintance of the Earl of Orkney, Henry Sinclair, in Scotland. Lord Sinclair, referred to in historical documents as the Admiral of Scotland's naval forces during the 1390s, was keen to raid, I mean acquire, certain Icelandic settlements, and we know he had a number of ongoing territorial disputes with the Norse kingdoms. Some additionally have claimed that the Scotsman, apparently a Knights Templar master and progenitor of the early Freemasons in Scotland, was among the last of his disbanded religious military order left in Europe. Legend has it that those Templars who hadn't been killed by the treachery of French King Philip IV had escaped from La Rochelle with their fleet, loaded with treasure, and sought refuge in Robert the Bruce's Scotland, helping him to kick English butt in the Battle of Bannockburn, before heading west to you-know-where. Anyway, the Zeno brothers apparently accompanied the Earl on his Atlantic raiding expeditions, and they successfully conquered not only a number of settlements in Iceland, but also the Faroe and Shetland Islands, before having a go at Greenland as well. 
It was during their sojourn there that they encountered a number of local fishermen, having recently returned in rags 25 years after having been blown off course, shipwrecked and being held captive by a tribe of savage cannibals. Much has happened to other Viking fishermen all the way back to Leif Erikson's time. It's probably not unreasonable to assume that this kind of sailing misadventure was a regular occurrence in the treacherous waters of the North Atlantic. And it would be ludicrous to assume that Mr. Erikson and co. were the only generation ever to go back and forth. Intrigued, Sinclair determined to go see for himself, and the experienced Venetians were given command of his ships. Sure enough, they eventually came across desolate new lands in the west, replete with said hostile natives, who had managed to learn the language of the fishermen they hadn't yet eaten. But it was those very culinary proclivities that discouraged our crew from taking the risk of joining them for supper. So they pushed on further south, following the coastline and encountering more favourable climes, and a region described by the brothers as being fertile and green in which there was some discussion of setting up a settlement. The crew were by now getting mutinously anxious to return home, and the adventure was cut short, its details recorded in letters and maps that the Zeno family reproduced in later decades. Whether it was true, or just a later Venetian attempt at poo-pooing Genoese claims to the New World, is hard to say. But what it suggests, yet again, is that while aristocrats and chest-beaters were busy puffing and preening, fishermen have always known a lot more than we give them credit for. That is to say, when they weren't exaggerating the size of their catch. One thing we know for sure is that Toscanelli, if you recall, who was the Florentine scholar that inspired Columbus, Caboto and Vespucci with his insistence on a westward route to Asia, knew all about the Zeno voyage and may have even based his entire thesis on it. Certainly, there was no way that the Genoese were going to credit their rival Venetians for anything. Caboto, in particular, having taken on Venetian citizenship to get his own start in business, ended up going bankrupt and on the run from Venetian creditors. When he absconded to London, Florentine bankers eventually bailed him out and were confident enough of his proposals to finance the English expedition which he was appointed to lead, over and above the Bristol seamen we mentioned earlier. Anyone who's ever tried to get a business loan knows that bankers are not stupid, but publicly there was no way Caboto was going to give the Venetians so much as a passing mention, let alone credit for his ideas. These Italians were playing their cards very close to their chests. Perhaps the sole exception among them was Giovanni de Verrazzano, a Florentine, yes, another Italian, in the service of the King of France, who felt somewhat left out in the sudden scramble for the New World, despite what he felt was a rightful claim, at least to Brazil. But the Pope and his Iberian southern neighbours were refusing to acknowledge it. Verrazzano was tasked with sailing up the entire American coast from Florida to look for a way through to Asia, which he did, even naming the spot we know today as Cape Cod, 
all the while mentoring a young Jacques Cartier who sailed with him. Unlike Columbus and Caboto, Verrazzano recorded his indebtedness to the knowledge of preceding generations of Atlantic fishermen, so there can be no doubt that his protégé Cartier knew full well what he would find off the Grand Banks when he was to sail there on his own a decade later. It doesn't fit the narrative, I know, but it seems that pretty much everyone has at least some claim to being the true discoverer of America. And I'm not even going to mention the post-glacial Clovis people who arrived over the Bering Land Bridge on the other side. That's too much of a rabbit hole even for me. But wait, it gets better. When the Spaniards were marauding the Mexican and Carolina coast in the 1520s in search of slaves and plunder, they came across a substantial village in present-day Georgia called Duhare. That was markedly different to that of other Mesoamerican tribes. Several unrelated contemporary Spanish records reported that the locals were even taller than they were, had long red hair and European facial features, long, full beards, and some even had tattoos. They domesticated geese, chickens, and especially deer, from whose milk they made a type of cheese. Some reports also indicated that they had a number of horses, which was otherwise unheard of in the New World. A bizarre tale of an unusual indigenous tribe, until we consider that the ancient name for Ireland sounded very similar, as well as long-held traditional folktales among some coastal Irish communities, that Viking raids in the distant past forced many of their villagers long having a peculiar tradition of deer cheese-making, to flee out to sea, with legends of their having found a new homeland to the west in which they eventually settled. I know, I'm pulling a long bow, but there it is. By the middle of the 16th century, the French had firmly entrenched themselves in Canada. The otherwise second-rate port of La Rochelle, lacking a river, nevertheless soon became the premier Newfoundland salted cod distribution hub in Europe, sending out 60% of all fleets to the area and providing a full 10% of all the fish sold in Europe. Eventually, this figure would rise to 60%. The English, despite their early awareness of the fishery, were still bringing in plenty of fish from Icelandic waters closer to home and, uncharacteristically, were in no hurry to claw their way into Canada. Moreover, as Protestants, they were not subject to the rigorous fasting traditions of the Catholics and were actually one of the lowest consumers of cod, so their interest at the time was more about export than supplying the domestic market. But as things hotted up in their trade war with the Hanseatic League, followed by the increased French naval presence in Newfoundland, they shifted focus and began muscling in on the fishing grounds of Canada, developing their own west-facing ports to handle the goods for distribution to Europe. Basque figures are often obscured in both Spanish and French statistics, but the port of Bilbao now became the chief European ironworks for the manufacture of anchors and metal fittings for the shipping industry. 
Some historians have suggested that the demand for replacement ships for those sunk in the scramble for Newfoundland cod between 1530 and 1600 was higher than at any time in history, even World War II. Their ambition was far outstripping their technology, for now. One problem the English faced in turning their attention to Newfoundland was their lack of a significant salt industry. Don't get me wrong, there was an ancient salt-making tradition there going back centuries. Indeed, all English place names that end in which were at one time salt-producing towns, the suffix deriving from an old Anglo-Saxon term for salt. But, like the Scandinavians further north, there was no way they could supply their own demand for the booming cod fishing industry, and there was no way the French were going to come to the party, not legally anyway. Besides, the French were charging a huge salt tax that was onerous even for their own people. In fact, the French salt tax was one of the factors that eventually caused the French Revolution. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. One solution the English came up with was to flirt with the Portuguese, who supplied them with all the salt they needed, and in return, the British offered the Portuguese fishing fleet naval protection from the French, who were getting in the unneighbourly habit of confiscating their ships at every opportunity. The Anglo-Portuguese love affair lasted until 1581, when the Portuguese were absorbed into the Spanish Empire ending up very poorly for them indeed, when the English Navy sunk the entire Spanish fishing fleet in 1585. And then, the Spanish Armada itself went down in flames soon after in its failed invasion of England. The Portuguese never regained their former access to Newfoundland, though they retained some privileges to fish the Grand Banks till the mid-1980s. The Basques, now also largely incorporated into the Spanish Empire and expelled from English-Canadian waters, turned their attention further north and shifted their energy into whaling in the waters off Iceland. But the Scandinavians, suffering a succession of the harshest winters on record, didn't take kindly to foreigners encroaching on their turf and massacred scores of Basque whalers in a brutal attack in 1615. Laws were even enacted approving the murder of any Basque they could lay their hands on, a law which wasn't formally repealed until 400 years later. Once a Viking, always a Viking. Basques from the other side of the Pyrenees still kept a foothold in the French outposts, but increased hostility by the Inuit and regular pirate raids by Dutch and English privateers saw the trade dwindle substantially. The English, on the other hand, were slow to capitalise on their growing share of the cod fishery. Their recent conflict with the Iberian powers meant they would struggle to both acquire salt and sell their fish to a broader European market. So they stuck to low-salt drying methods that were not so popular with fussy continental consumers, but which nevertheless supplied the entire Royal Navy with nutritious rations in their ongoing wars with France. Just like the Vikings, the English now relied on dried cod 
to get their warriors from A to B, and as they exerted pressure on French fisheries, they strongly regulated its supply, which impacted the French economy and hence their military spending. Things were getting tough at home too, and plenty of religious dissenters decided to make a go of it over in the New World. Most everybody has heard of Captain John Smith, the swashbuckling Turk-killing adventurer who was Pocahontas's lover boy, as well as one of the founders of the colony of Jamestown. But what most people don't know is that the tough living conditions of the settlement forced him to travel up the coast in search of both better land and hopefully goldfields. What he found instead was the New England coastline, teeming with cod, which he proceeded to catch and salt, returning to England with holds full of fish and selling the haul on the European market, which made him an absolute fortune. Smith's widely circulated account in 1616 of plentiful cod off the coast of Maine was incentive enough for the pilgrims to make a go of it, and is the reason they chose Plymouth rather than the more southerly Jamestown as their landing site. But the Holy Rollers had little experience in either fishing or farming and almost starved to death until Native Americans came to their rescue. The irony was that at the very same time, dozens of English ships were some way offshore pulling in fish as big as men. Quick learners with a strong Protestant work ethic, they eventually got the hang of it and within a couple of decades, the New England townships that sprang up in their wake were becoming prosperous cod-fishing communities. Salem, a town now noted for its brutal witch trials, was at the time actually a lucrative cod-fishing hub. In fact, by 1640, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was contributing 300,000 salted cod annually to the European market. The milder weather ice-free harbours and the plentiful local arable land meant that New England developed an all-year-round fishing industry and a continuously inhabited local infrastructure, compared to the Canadian fishing grounds off Newfoundland, which were limited to seasonal fishing and hence a much slower pace of development. The English soon found themselves out-competing their French neighbours to the north, who now found it expedient to sell their catch to the New Englanders rather than waste time processing it themselves in a climate where time and daylight was of the essence. In return, they bought farm tools, cattle and equipment, and the English-speaking cities that soon arose, such as Boston, boomed as a result. New Englanders developed an entrepreneurial business culture that spanned the entire length of the American coastline living entirely independently of British oversight, and more importantly, meddling. Adam Smith, when writing his seminal treatise on economics, The Wealth of Nations, singled out New England as an example of the prosperity that could be achieved through unrestricted capitalism. By the mid-17th century, New England had become such a major player in the international cod trade that the fish was depicted in a myriad of official seals and documents, and generations of fishing families 
had established what's come to be known as the codfish aristocracy, with numerous mansions being decorated with stylized fish motifs. We know that there was even a gilded cod hanging from the ceiling of the Boston Town Hall, as well as other government assembly buildings. In the burgeoning coastal cities of North America, cash, as they say, was king, and cod was cash. By now, salted American cod accounted for an astonishing 60% of all the fish eaten in Europe. But it wasn't just poor Mediterranean housewives and fancy French chefs who were making the most of the influx of the cheap but delectable fish. Nor was cod, by any means, the only profitable industry to emerge throughout the New World. But cod played a significant role in their facilitation. You see, by the 1700s, the sugarcane industry was also big business, and the numerous Caribbean islands that produced it had developed their own molasses aristocracies, just like the cod snobs up north. Sugar production was a hugely labour-intensive process, and like the cotton and tobacco plantations, to keep costs low, it relied on the labour of hundreds of thousands of imported slaves, who worked sometimes 16 hours a day, in the searing heat, day in and day out, till they died. These people had to be fed, but the arable land required for food crops would have eaten into valuable sugarcane land. Initially, they were fed salted beef all the way from Britain. But when New England's salted cod market took off, cod barons quickly found a new market for the fish that was not quite up to export standard. Super cheap second-rate bacalao was sold to plantation owners at a discount price. And indeed, some producers turned entirely to exporting low-salt, poor-quality fish entirely geared for the West Indies marketplace. When the French ceded Newfoundland to the English in the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, the industry accelerated with gusto. The cod cities of northeastern America were now trading cheap fish to English, French and Dutch Caribbean sugar barons from which they acquired salt, sugar, cotton and tobacco. They were likewise trading their premium cod direct to the Europeans in return for wine, iron, coal and fancy European status symbols like china, textiles and fashion items. As Americans increasingly engaged in trade with the outside world, they came to resent any kind of interference in their commercial arrangements. The British back in the motherland knew there was trouble brewing, and when they eventually won the Seven Years' War with France, there was much discussion over what the spoils of war should be. Do they let the French keep Canada and their remaining cod fisheries, or do they take Guadalupe or one of the other lucrative French Caribbean sugar islands that made more money? than all the British ones combined. In the end, the Brits were getting so nervous about losing their American colonies to mutiny that they opted to forego the sugar income and expand their holdings in the north of America instead. Kolansky notes that in allowing the French to keep their slave islands but deny them their Canadian fisheries, 
they were actually accelerating the descent into war with their own 13 colonies. You see, one of the fundamental laws governing commerce within the British Empire were the so-called Acts of Trade and Navigation. Under this law, all colonial outposts were required to sell their export goods to England and also buy their imported goods from England. In other words, they were supposed to sell their cod to England and then buy their Caribbean sugar, salt, Spanish iron, coal and French wine and textiles from Mother England and nowhere else. You can just imagine the customs and tax revenue this would provide for His Majesty's government without even lifting a finger. Not surprisingly, Americans took a dim view of this law and completely ignored it. Nobody likes a middleman, so they decided American cash was staying firmly in America, and the COD export revenues from their direct trade to international partners was being used to build factories that converted cheap imported Caribbean molasses into rum. COD was fueling not only a boom in the slave market, but now also the booze industry. In West Africa, there were three ways you could purchase slaves, with cash, salted cod, or Boston rum. The French sugar plantations needed New England cod, and the Boston rum industry needed French molasses. After a century of unimpeded trade, the big boys in London finally decided it was time to rein in these insolent colonial rascals, so they imposed a molasses import duty, which was aimed at crippling both the production of rum and the export of cod. It did neither, and the burgeoning contraband trade in cod for molasses actually increased after the introduction of the Molasses Act of 1733. A few years later, they upped the ante and hiked the taxes even more, now also taxing the import of Madeira. The Americans retaliated by boycotting British goods altogether and smuggling both sugar and Madeira on the black market on an even greater scale. Once again, the British responded, this time with a new tactic, levying a direct tax on the population they called the Stamp Act, rather than trying to police the widely flaunted customs duty. Other general taxes soon followed. Things were getting grim and nobody was backing down. Kolansky writes that the revolution that followed was not a cultural one or a romantic social experiment, such as many that both preceded and followed the American War of Independence. It was instigated by middle-class Protestant entrepreneurs furious at outsiders meddling in their business. They weren't interested in rectifying class disputes, minority ethnic tensions or social engineering. To them, it was just business, pure and simple. As the situation hotted up, the British first tried to starve out the colonists by blocking their harbours and patrolling the fishing grounds. But this wasn't 1620. The colonists had by now plenty of food, plenty of booze and a new homegrown style of ship called the schooner that could outrun pretty much any British warship. Even when fitted with dodgy cannons, American schooners were running rings around British patrol ships, 
with hundreds of them being captured and added to the fledgling American naval fleet. In the end, the British decided it just wasn't worth it. During the peace negotiations that followed, the British refused to recognise American claims to offshore fishing grounds in the Grand Banks, as well as other fisheries that were technically off the shore of British-Canadian territories. The idea of territorial marine sovereignty in areas that were technically on the high seas were still in their infancy, and the aggressive negotiations by President John Adams in lobbying for the rights of New England fishermen was criticised by many Southern Americans as a vanity project and a pandering to codfish millionaires. But Adams pushed hard to retain their established rights on the Grand Banks, arguing that the New England codfishing industry was an incubator of future Navy personnel and that the fishermen themselves were the keepers of national security. The British eventually caved in, but this didn't extend to their right to trade cod to Caribbean colonies, and the British barred them from the market, which resulted in a severe decline in cod exports, and consequently a food shortage in the Caribbean that saw the deaths of tens of thousands of slaves from hunger, till the British managed to get their own Newfoundland fisheries sufficiently mobilised to stop the famine. The United States and United Kingdom went to war again in 1812, and the New England fishermen, sailing on new, even faster homegrown ships called clippers, once again proved their worth to the cause of liberty. But in the new round of peace negotiations, politicians from southern states, now in charge, left the question of fishing rights open for negotiation, which continued to strain US and Canadian relations for the next 200 years. When the British abolished slavery in the West Indies in 1839, followed by the French and Dutch in the Antilles a decade later, the lucrative Caribbean cod export market of New England markedly slowed. Fortunately for the Americans, domestic consumption began to grow, and as had been the case in the Royal Navy for centuries past, Salted cod now became a staple of the U.S. Army. So much so that Union bellies were always fuller than Confederate ones and the Army's need for cheap food during the Civil War temporarily revived the fortunes of New England fishing communities. But the war also saw the rapid industrialization of the North and the codfish aristocracy began shifting their investment capital into heavy industry rather than fishing or whaling. This inward focus and rapid expansion of industrial development of American natural resources saw a concurrent decrease in the import of foreign raw materials, such as coal and iron. So the shrinking cod exports went hand-in-hand with shrinking European imports. Like the US, Southern Europe was undergoing a population boom in the late 19th century, and the insatiable demand for more bacalao by nations long enamoured of the salty fish delight brought back into play suppliers that had long been sidelined by the North American fisheries. The Norwegians and Danes finally found a gap in the market, upped their salt game, 
and aggressively promoted their own North Atlantic cod industries, filling the rapacious appetite for stockfish in the Mediterranean, and they have remained the dominant players ever since. Now, so far, it might seem like I've been giving the impression that the fishermen who discovered the Americas and kept it secret for so long, like fishermen generally, were an insular group of specialist hunters who viewed themselves as some kind of transnational brotherhood, pursuing with sportsmanlike passion a livelihood that few outsiders understood, wanting nothing more than to be left alone. And in some respects, this is true. Even today, anglers the world over share a camaraderie and love of the chase that their wives struggle to understand. Going out in all weather, spending ridiculous amounts of money on tackle, boats, fuel and bait, only to bring home a couple of slimy, stinky critters that seem to be more trouble than they're worth, if they're lucky. But it would be unfair to dismiss their forebears as just a bunch of good-time joes. The codfishing industry in particular was one of the toughest, most dangerous and tragedy-prone occupations in the world. The North Atlantic is a freezing, treacherous and squall-prone region that even the most experienced mariner fears and respects. Few cod fishermen, even today, have all their fingers. The continuous biting Arctic cold can freeze hands within half an hour, even with synthetic modern rubber-lined gloves. Frozen, slippery decks, swinging yard arms and freak waves can wipe a man out and even sink ships in a split second, and often did, particularly after days in rough seas where men worked round the clock and had little sleep. Off the Massachusetts coastal town of Gloucester in 1871, 20 schooners and 140 men were lost in rough seas. In 1873, 32 vessels and 174 men were lost. A single gale off the fishing banks in 1879 sunk 79 vessels with a loss of 249 souls, all from a town that had barely 15,000 inhabitants at the time. This was a typical statistic up and down the northeastern American coast decade after decade. One can only imagine the casualty rate suffered by fishermen in centuries prior. The banks, where the fish are most plentiful, is a zone where cold and warm ocean currents meet, which results in frequent and impenetrable fog. Visibility and sound transmission is so poor that you often can't see more than a metre ahead. Countless stories abound of men lowered from the ship in small rowboats called dories to bait longlines and haul in fish that became lost in the fog and were unable to be found. Left hopelessly adrift until they froze to death in the cold, drowned by freak waves or died of thirst, never to be seen again. The casualty rate of North American fishermen remains the highest of any non-military profession. U.S. statistics show that about five in every 100,000 workers die in workplace accidents. The rate among fishermen 
was 100 in 100,000. Canadian fishing casualties were double that. British studies have shown a death rate among fishermen to be 20 times higher than in manufacturing. Perhaps this grim reality lies at the heart of why the fishermen developed such strong bonds of mutual respect and viewed themselves as a unique transnational brotherhood. The art of fishing had changed little since the Middle Ages. Records of handline fishing go back to at least the 13th century, with iron hooks and lines made of nettle flax, pulped down and spun into a yarn that had better water resistance qualities than other materials available at the time. Handline fishing was quite labour intensive, high risk and low yield for men trying to make a living from it. Fishing communities throughout Europe and the Americas held religious ceremonies on the pier at the start of the fishing season to bless the departing vessels and commemorate their many lost comrades from previous voyages to the fishing grounds. Many, in particular those pursuing cod, were opposed to the use of nets, which they feared would interfere with the fishers' migration route and cause them to change their habits. Fishermen have always been a superstitious lot. The natural extension of handlining was the use of one long line attached to an anchored buoy at one end with a weighted line along which were set individual baited traces every metre or so and then released to drift. Fishermen would later be lowered from the mothership in a dory and row along the entire length winding a section of it up on a spool, collect the caught fish, rebait the hooks and release it again, moving steadily along the line, which could be kilometres long and have thousands of baited traces to manage. As the dory got fuller with fish, it became heavier and at greater risk of capsizing with every single fish taken on board. Long lining has quite a long history, but it was the post-revolutionary French looking to re-establish their devastated fishing fleets, who began subsidising their industry and encouraged the use of long lines, which, though dangerous, was far more productive. There was a lot of controversy over the practice, not because of modern notions of animal cruelty or concerns about overfishing, we'll get to that later, it was because it required tonnes of bait to set the hooks, and bait costs money. If there's one thing a fisherman hates, it's when the bloke next to him has an unfair advantage. For centuries, fishing was the domain of the little guy, working shoulder to shoulder with his mates and earning an honest living through the sweat of his own brow. No one could afford to bait kilometres of line with the tonnes of baitfish required to run it but the French were now financing their own fishermen and everyone else was getting shirty about it. Not only was it an expensive enterprise, but the last thing anyone wanted was hundreds of ships trawling thousands of kilometres of fishing line crisscrossing the communal fishing grounds through impenetrable fog that would surely tangle and damage everyone else's lines. It was a recipe for chaos out on the banks. Some countries tinkered with it, but, as mentioned, it was expensive to subsidy if it was to be competitive. So the Canadians adopted a technique long used on a smaller scale by the Norwegians. 
a type of net, but one that is reasonably narrow and unlikely to block the migration of an entire school, would be lowered just off the sea floor. Those cod that don't swim around or over swim into it, and as they struggle to get through the weave, are trapped by the gills, unable to wriggle out backwards. The technique, called gill netting, became very popular and increased yields significantly. Not one bait fish is required, and the hauling labour can be performed from the deck of a ship, much more safely. As the growing population of Europe increased its demand, gill netting was adopted more widely. Fish sizes began to decline, and you'd be forgiven for wondering whether the practice could be sustained. But the spirit of the age was one of an exuberant faith in the power of nature to sustain herself. Scientific advances, industrialization, and the ascendancy of Darwinian evolutionary theory fostered not only a positive view of man's future, but a confidence in the elegant ability of nature to adapt, correct, and restore herself in an infinite number of ways. Politicians exploited the idea that nature was an inexhaustible resource, and the way in which they used science to argue against any kind of regulation was breathtaking. During an international fisheries convention in 1883, Darwinian champion Thomas Henry Huxley delivered the keynote address, in which he dismissed growing concerns about overfishing as unscientific and erroneous. He reportedly said that any tendency to overfishing will be checked by a gradual reduction of supply, long before anything even remotely resembling permanent exhaustion becomes obvious. Huxley's views influenced the international consensus for over a century. He was, of course, completely wrong. Not only was he ignorant about critical tolerance thresholds, breeding and maturity patterns, but his assertions that any reduction in commercial fish stocks would be gradual and manageable failed to account for the reality that the consistently stable high yields were the result not of adaptations in fish breeding, but of ever more sophisticated and efficient means of fishing, such as the introduction of the steam engine. You see, most trawlers, that is to say, fishing vessels that drag something behind them, were still under sail and too low-powered to drag anything heavier than a long line. But with the introduction of steam engines, they now had the thrust to drag huge nets across the bottom, and scoop up everything in their path. By the 1890s, the British were already converting the fishing fleet to steam power, and by the 1920s, innovations in net designs meant that trawlers could now chase schools of fish over both flat and uneven bottoms, pursuing them all over the Atlantic. By the 1930s, the diesel engine made coal obsolete and the extra space gained on board allowed room for processing the catch in what were, effectively, the first factory ships. As greater numbers of motorised trawlers crisscrossed the Atlantic, hoovering up everything in their path, there was a concurrent change in tastes among Americans and North Europeans. They seemed to increasingly favour fresh fish rather than salted, which was just as well, 
because salting and drying was a very labour-intensive process that could take months to dry in the open air for market. Necessity, as they say, is the mother of invention, and the growing demand for fresh fish in the domestic market found its solution in a man called Clarence Birdseye. Mr Birdseye, a New Yorker, was fascinated with animals of all kinds, alive and dead, having even taught himself the art of taxidermy while still a schoolboy. He ended up working as a scientist for several government agencies and eventually found himself in Labrador, Newfoundland, where he discovered that fish he caught by line froze almost instantly as he landed them in the freezing Canadian winters. When eaten, these fish tasted better and were not at all mushy, like the frozen ones he had eaten back home in New York. He correctly deduced that rapid freezing was the key to preserving the quality and integrity of tissue, and so he worked feverishly to develop a rapid freezing process that, after some failures, would nevertheless go on to make him a multi-millionaire and his name a household word around the world. By the end of World War II, the combination of diesel engine, bottom-dragging nets and the freezer gave rise to the true factory ships that inspire both awe and revulsion in the way they can devastate entire fish populations. Ever more voices of alarm were being raised as countries around the world trawled their way across oceans without regard to the consequences. The only regulations introduced were a minimum mesh sizes for the nets, which were a good idea in theory, but not so much in practice, as bigger fish occluded the walls of the nets, trapping everything else within the ballooning structure. Other innovations, such as sonar and spotter aircraft, developed during the war to spot enemies, were now being turned to fishing, as trawlers moved in and wiped out entire shoals, leaving a barren desert on the sea floor. Little countries like Iceland, that had been fishing in the same way since medieval times, now looked on as British and American trawlers were sweeping up the fish stocks offshore and seriously depleting what was left for them. Some argued for a ban on foreigners, while others wanted to modernise and join the party. International waters were technically three miles offshore, and therefore fair game for any country to plunder, which they did. But the Icelanders, long dependent on fishing for their own survival, and increasingly aware of a reduction in fish size and breeding patterns, began to push for an extension of its marine territorial border, out to four miles. Foreign politicians were outraged. US President Harry Truman, in 1945, opened up the proverbial Pandora's box by declaring that the US mineral reserves in its offshore continental shelf belonged exclusively to the US. The declaration was chiefly made in relation to protecting their offshore oil drilling investment. But never before had any nation claimed to own a continental shelf, let alone the resources within it. Truman followed up by declaring a conservation no-fishing zone along the entire east coast 
primarily to prevent Japanese salmon fishermen from pursuing the migrating fish before they could get to their spawning grounds. The American claims on offshore marine zones set off a chain reaction all over the world, with post-war nations, old and new, flexing their muscles and laying claim to continental shelves and offshore fisheries to bolster sovereignty and licence revenue. By the mid-1950s, Iceland's fisheries were in serious decline, so its government unilaterally declared the zone would be pushed out to 12 miles. The British issued a formal protest. Many European nations that profited from fishing there, such as the Dutch, French, Belgians, Danes, Germans and Spaniards, backed up the English, but when Icelanders began patrolling their demarcation zone with gunboats, they all withdrew except for the British, who now brought in 37 fully armed frigates and destroyers of the Royal Navy for protection. The Icelandic Coast Guard, with only seven patrol boats, each armed with only one gun, manned by water police and civilian militia, nevertheless refused to back down. It was a David and Goliath standoff in what was to be called the first of the three Cod Wars. Fearing an international backlash, the British stood down and eventually accepted the 12-mile limit. A decade later, Iceland again unilaterally declared an extension of its limit, this time to 50 miles. Once again, the UK and now the new European Economic Community went bonkers, referring Iceland to the International Court of Justice for violating international law. Iceland told both them and the International Court to sod off, as the zone was well within their own continental shelf, so, as far as they were concerned, the court had no jurisdiction. The Second Cod War was on, but ended almost as quickly as the first one, though the British were reluctant to send in the Navy, considering that both Iceland and the UK were allies within NATO. By now, the Icelanders had better patrol boats too, and they equipped them with specially designed submerged arms that swept up and severed the cables of trawlers, resulting in a loss of their expensive gear and entire catch. The now useless trawlers had no choice but to head home. Some took on the Coast Guard and tried to ram their way to victory but the Coast Guard's vessels were designed to be icebreakers, as you might well expect, and the trawlers were therefore no match for them. Several shots actually were fired, and the trawlers, lacking a naval escort, retreated. Once again, the Royal Navy moved in, and a game of cat and mouse ensued, with ships ramming and scraping each other, but miraculously no one was killed. The circus made fishing nigh on impossible, so the British eventually retreated. That was now two out of two victories for Iceland. By 1974, codfish stocks were not just declining, they were at critical levels. Scientists from a number of countries, including the UK, were sounding the alarm. In a fish where maturity was everything, there were dramatically fewer fish old enough to breed, and the writing was well and truly on the wall. So, once again, the
the Iceland government in 1975, citing conservation as the main criterion, extended their territorial limit out, this time, to 200 miles. The UK and Germany were beside themselves. Since the last Cod War, specialist English trawler ports such as Hull, Grimsby and Fleetwood were already in serious decline, with powerful fish and chips industry associations warning of a complete collapse of the British fishing industry. Negotiations were fierce, and intermediaries had suggested that the British could avert the disaster by focusing on other, more plentiful, even local fish species such as pollock. The Icelanders even offered concessions to fish their waters for anything else but cod. But the British government refused to budge, while ironically, at the same time, demanding a 100-mile exclusive fishing zone for themselves around the UK. The European Commission, frustrated, pulled the rug out from under the British by declaring a 200-mile zone for all members of the EEC, wherever there was no clash of borders. Countries the world over followed suit, and fishermen now increasingly found themselves subject not only to territorial but also regulatory restrictions. Across the Atlantic, the Canadians and Americans also almost came to blows and shots were actually fired in a dispute over the location of the marine border between Maine and Nova Scotia. But when it was finally resolved, it also meant that Spanish and Portuguese fleets, having fished the Grand Banks centuries longer than anyone else, were now expelled well beyond their familiar fishing grounds and the entire Iberian North Atlantic fishing industry all but collapsed. For the cod, it was too little too late, and fish stocks continued to decline well into the 1980s, despite ever more stringent controls on vessels, nets, and even quotas. For the North Americans, the 200-mile limits were not so much geared for conservation as protectionism, and the Canadians, observing a decline in their Atlantic towns and cities compared to the industrialised interior, reignited the fishing industry with incentives, tax breaks and subsidies that induced large-scale consortiums to invest in super trawlers and factories, which only had the effect of reducing inshore fish spawning populations that was the lifeblood of small-town communities. On the books, Fishing revenue was up and politicians were spinning it as a win, but in reality, communities all over the northeast of Canada were in trouble and local fishermen tried in vain to warn the government. For the cod too, now being trawled out before they could even spawn, the decline was rapid and terminal. In 1992, the government finally announced a moratorium. 30,000 fishermen suddenly found themselves unemployed, most of whom now received subsistence welfare with promises of rebooting the industry as soon as populations were viable again, which to this day they're still not. The Scandinavians were a little wiser. There was greater national concern for sustainable fishing general bipartisanship on conservation issues and a genuine willingness for short-term sacrifice 
so they now find their fisheries are making a gradual and solid recovery. The first to start fishing cod, they will probably still be around when all the others are gone. On the other side of the pond, scientists are still unsure about whether a recovery in Newfoundland stocks is even possible. Political will seems less universal and subject to pressure from business lobbyists. We can only hope for the sake of local communities that the cod will make a comeback and that governments will exercise restraint in managing its future. So what can we say about the poor old cod, its fishermen, the scramble for America and the need for wise custodianship of our resources? The story of the cod is not only the story of Europe and America, but of competing heroes, of the little guys against the big guys, of the rise and fall of nations, of the failed comprehension of nature's complexity, of hubris and an all-too-human resistance to delayed gratification. But it's also a story of adventure, high drama, aspiration, innovation and problem-solving. The cod has fed billions of hungry people over at least a thousand years, facilitated both the expansion of slavery and its eventual abolition. It gave rise to the golden age of discovery, brought millions out of poverty and enabled the establishment of the great liberal democracies that we live in today. The lust for cod encouraged Europeans to grow beyond their environmental and political constraints, and the countless fishermen that chased them were the real heroes behind the great names of history we all learned at school. As is so often the case, heroes are often the quiet achievers who get no credit but who keep showing up day after day, risking life and limb to keep the world running and to put food on our tables. If we really think about it, just maybe a fish can be a hero too. If you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future videos. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening.